So you're with us at a great time as we move right into the fall semester, fall season, and opening up a new series. Our text this morning we're going to be digging into is in the book of Acts in chapter 2. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, it's going to be on the screen for you behind me as we read it together. In Acts chapter 2, where we're going to jump into the scriptures this morning is just on the heels of Peter's sermon in the day of Pentecost. So Jesus has come and lived in our place and died in our place, and he has risen from the grave, and he has ascended into heaven, and then he gives his followers these instructions. He says, stay here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you need to go out into all the world and take this good news of who I am and what I've accomplished to everyone that you meet. And so Peter, um, they're, they're, all the disciples are still gathered there in Jerusalem, and the day of Pentecost, the Spirit falls upon them as Peter stands up to preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus. And so he preaches a sermon there at the day of Pentecost, and then just on the heels of that sermon, beginning in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, we find these words recorded for us. Now, when they heard this, this pre Peter's preaching, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were about that day about 3,000 souls added. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, next week, I will celebrate my fourth month here at Sabine Creek Fellowship. And prior to coming here as the pastor at Sabine Creek Fellowship, I spent the last 12 years of my life at another large church in our community. But before coming here to the Dallas area, my wife and I lived in Pineville, Louisiana. Okay, you've probably never heard of it, and there's a good reason why. Okay, it's a little speck on the map in central Louisiana. But we spent uh, our college years there, and we spent, I spent five years there. Um, I, I'm a little slow learner, so it takes me a little while to get through my education. I spent five years there pursuing my degree. Um, she was there pursuing a nursing degree. I was there pursuing a religious studies degree. Uh, God brought us together. We got married there, and God opened up opportunities for us to serve a local church there. And so so we served faithfully as an interim student pastor um, at First Baptist Church in Pineville, Louisiana. And so the church was about 300 people in number, and the community was about 10,000 people in number. And so we um, were, had our lives essentially had been woven together with this small, close-knit community of other believers there in Pineville, Louisiana. Uh, we knew the, the folks in the congregation every Sunday morning when we walked into the church. People were hugging our necks and asking us 
how we were doing. Uh, and so we had that close-knit group of community there in, 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 the, in the church that we were located in. And we knew almost everyone who was in the town that we were in as well. But when the church decided and determined that they were going to bring in someone from the outside in order to fill the full-time vacancy as a minister of students, my wife and I felt God leading us now to move on towards seminary. And so we packed up everything that we owned in like the back of a truck, uh, and we moved to the Dallas area. And we settled in over in Garland, and we found a little apartment there with a six-month lease. And I started seminary down in downtown Dallas, and I started on uh, staff at a very large church here in our local community. And so we went from a city of about 10,000 people and a church of about 300 people into a city of millions of people surrounding us in a church of six to 7,000 people on a Sunday morning. And so what happened in our lives is we kind of got plucked up and got pulled out of this tight, close-knit community that we had experienced for five years together. And we got moved and God shifted us into a place where we knew hardly anyone and we had to begin to reestablish a new identity and who we were and where we were going to invest and where we were going to plant ourselves. And I can tell you the honest truth in those, those moments and that season in our life was challenging for us. It was difficult for us. It felt like what had happened is somebody had pulled on the thread of our lives and it, everything had kind of begun to become unraveled. Okay? Some of you have probably been there before when it feels like you've been kind of plucked out of a setting in which you were connected, in which you were being invested in, and you were making an investment, and it feels like all of a sudden things are kind of unraveling in your life, and that's how we felt. Every Sunday morning when we left that large congregation and drove to our apartment in Garland and then to our little home in Rowlett, I can remember every Sunday morning my wife fighting back tears because we didn't know anyone. We felt isolated. Even though we were in this room with thousands of people, we felt all alone in this journey. And some of you have probably been there before. You've probably felt like your thread has been pulled and the, the thread of your lives has been pulled and everything kind of begins to come unraveled a little bit. Because what we lost in that move from a very small, close-knit church and a very small, close-knit community into a very massive city and a very massive church by all accounts was we lost community. We lost that sense of belonging to other people. And they belong to us. That's what we lost. We lost community. And so we desperately scrambled to try and find it again whenever God planted us here in this particular location. Some of you experienced that before where you've been plucked up and you've, the thread's been pulled and you've con you're just constantly scrambling to find that sense of belonging, that sense of identity, that sense of community. Now, there's a lot, of area, a lot of ways that you can try and build community, a lot of uh, things that you can try and build community around. Okay? And whenever I use the language of community, what I'm talking about is that sense of there's, there's these lives that are being woven together with one another. So that, that what's created is this fabric that's stronger and more resilient than any one of those could be in isolation from the other. 
It's kind of like a tapestry. If you were to walk into an art museum and see a tapestry hanging there on the wall, on the, on the back side, you're going to see all these mangled threads that are back there. But on the front side, you're going to see this beautiful image that's been woven together because you got this thread and this thread and this thread and this thread in the hands of a master craftsman or artisan that is weaving these threads together to create this massive tapestry that is more beautiful and that it's stronger than any one of those individual threads in isolation from the other. And so when I talk about community, that's what I'm talking about. It's life being woven together with life in such a way that there's this resiliency and there's this strength and there's this beauty because there's this connectedness to who we are. We belong somewhere. And those people belong to us and we belong to them. Now, you can build that kind of community around lots of different things. But in the Bible, the common thread, uh, the needle that sews all of us together as Christians, that sews all of us together as Christians, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. The declaration, proclamation, and application of the gospel to our lives. That's the continual answer and response of the Bible that says, why are you bound together with these particular people in this particular place? Why is there this close-knitness? Why is it that your life is, is woven together with these other people who are in this room this morning? Those of you who are part of our church. It's not because necessarily we share common interest, and it's not because necessarily we share um, a, a, a common background and a common story. We've all come from the same place, but it's because of this, this common identity that we have who Jesus is, and what he's done. That's the needle that gets connected into the thread of our lives and begins to weave us together. So then the church will become something more stronger and more resilient and more beautiful than any one of us in our lives could be in isolation from the other. And in Acts chapter 2, we find a beautiful picture of what God does. As you get all these folks who are coming from different backgrounds and different areas and different seasons of life, different experiences and encounters, perhaps even different ethnicities and races that God is saving and bringing together as he's forming this close-knit community on the basis of the gospel message. And so this morning as we, as we open this series, what I'd like to do is spend a little bit of time digging into Acts chapter 2 to see this kind of community that God is forming because the kind of community that he begins to form in Acts chapter 2 is the kind of community that he continues to form throughout the history of the church even into our day. And so as we open this, the scriptures together this morning in Acts 2, I want to see, what, see is first of all, what is this kind of gospel community that Luke is writing about here in Acts chapter 2? And then how is it that you and I pursue that in our lives? How do you know if you're pursuing it? And then what's the result of it? So what is it? How do you pursue it? How do you know if you're really pursuing it? And how do you, what does it look like whenever it happens? What's the result of it? So first and foremost, what is gospel community? Here's what gospel community is. Let me give you a brief working definition of it as we work through this series together. Gospel community is the fabric that's created by lives being woven and bound together by the good news of Jesus Christ. Gospel community is the fabric that's created by lives being woven and bound together by the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, you look back in the text and you say, what's the good news? What's the good news? If you look back in verse 39, Peter coming off of that sermon as there are individuals there in the crowd who get cut to the heart. They kind of experience this great conviction as Peter stands to preach. And they say, what should we do? And Peter tells them, here's what you should do. You should repent of your sin and be baptized. 
And so the text tells us in verse 39, Peter says, for, I want you to listen to exactly what he says. He says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. He says to this crowd that gets, comes under great conviction, that's cut to the core, he says you should repent and be baptized to, to experience forgiveness of sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of the Holy Spirit coming in to indwell you, he said, is made to you and to your children, but not only to those of them who were there who were Jews who had come from that ethnic identity and background, he says the promise was made to you and your children and to all who are far off, those who, are, who perhaps have never known the, the, the experience of being in covenant relationship with God, those who have never understood what it means to bear the name as his people, those who are far off and far removed, like Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 where he talks about there's just been this dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, and that what God has done in Christ is he's brought these people from very different backgrounds and very different walks of life, and he's woven them together now in Jesus, those who are far off. And then notice what else he says, in everyone whom the Lord our God calls, everyone that God calls to himself, Everyone whose hearts get awakened to the beauty and majesty and worth and value and glory of Jesus. Everyone whom God awakens and whom God calls and whom God stirs. He says he's weaving, is being woven together into this community. That's the good news. The promise is for you. The promise is for you. And when we respond to this promise that God makes that he would forgive us of our sin and that, we, that he would give us the gift of the Holy Spirit to come in and dwell us, all of a sudden our lives, existing in isolation as a singular thread, begin to be woven together with everyone else who has responded to that call, everyone else who has received that promise, everyone else who has tasted of that gift. Our lives get woven together into this tapestry, into this fabric. That's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 2. That's exactly what happened in my life. I wasn't raised in the church. I didn't grow up in Sunday school being taught the Bible stories. But at the age of 15, I had a buddy of mine who ran on the cross-country team with me who came to me and he said, hey, listen, you should come to church with us. And I thought, me go to church? I've never been to church in my life. Why would I go to church? I'm a pretty good dude. I don't need to go to church. And so eventually I kept asking, he kept asking, he kept asking. And finally he hooked me in with the promise of playing basketball after the Bible study. I thought, I'll go. I'm not a good basketball player, but I'll go and hang out and shoot some hoops. And so he invited me and invited me. And finally, they, eventually they just showed up on my doorstep one afternoon because the church was about two blocks from my house, came knocking on my door and saying, come with us. Come with us. And so... I changed clothes and went down to the church, and I met the youth pastor that night, and sure enough, they shared a Bible study, um, and at the end of that Bible study, he shared the gospel, the plan of salvation, what God has done in Christ to save me from my sins, and he gave an invitation. Now listen, I had heard, growing up in the South, I'd heard about Jesus all my life, but I had never heard the gospel message presented. Here I am as a sinner who deserves God's just judgment of eternal separation from him, but what God has done in his love and his grace and his kindness is that he has sent his son to live the life that I could not live. 
in perfect obedience to God's will. And then to die the death that I deserve to die as one who had transgressed and violated and rebelled against God's word. And that God raised him from the grave. And so that if I would trust in him, that God would forgive me of my sins, not because of what I can do, but because of what Jesus has done. That was the first night I ever heard the gospel message. And God awakened my heart and God opened my mind and unstopped my ears and illumined my eyes to see and hear and know and love Jesus. You know what I found after that day? Is that my life, which had kind of existed in isolation, now it was being woven together with these other teenagers. These other teenagers who had responded to that call, who had received that promise. You know what I found subsequently through my college years, through my young adult years, is that whenever now, on the basis of that good news, the promise is offered, the promise is extended, that when someone comes to faith, all of a sudden, they get bound together with me in a way that's unique. You don't experience any other form of community. All of a sudden, you've got brothers and sisters now. A family that you didn't know before. And Paul says, for everyone who would receive, or, or, or Peter says, for everyone who would receive this promise, it's extended to all. And that good news provides the foundation for this gospel community. But how do we pursue it? How do we pursue it? Let me share this with you as far as how we pursue it. This is how you and I pursue this kind of community in our lives. It's by making a choice intentionally to choose identity over affinity as the basis of our community. Now, what does that mean? to choose identity over affinity as the basis of our community. I want you to notice what happens with this, with this group of individuals who come to faith following Peter's preaching. There's 3,000 souls that are added that day, and the very next words in the text in verse 42 are, and they. Who's the they? The 3,000 that came to faith. The 3,000 that responded to this promise that God had made to forgive and to cleanse and to indwell them. The, this is the, they are the they, okay, in verse 42, this 3,000. And God says, and, and, and Luke tells us that after they come to faith, they begin, their lives get wrapped up together as they study and as they serve and as they fellowship and as they sacrifice and as they give for one another. Now, if you, the Bible doesn't say anything. The text doesn't say anything in, in Acts chapter 2 about after they get converted, they all show up the next day and they say, listen, where's, where do all the singles meet? They don't show up the next day and say, hey, where do all the married couples in their 50s gather? Right? We've got 3,000 people here. Where, where do all the A&M grads, what house do they go to for small group? Right? Where do all the UT grads, where do all the Chevy guys go for small group? Where do all the Ford guys go for small group, right? Where do all the runners go for small group? Where do all the bicyclists go for small group? Where do all the triathletes go for small group? They don't show up and say, hey, where do all the paleo diet people go for small group? And where do all the processed food eaters go for small group, right? They don't show up and, and have, based on all these affinities and interests and common preferences, and go, where do these people go for their small groups? 
Because the text tells us there's 3,000 added through these large corporate gatherings they gathered in the temple and day by day in homes. But it doesn't say they were, they were organized on the basis of preferences or affinities. Like, where, where are all the breastfeeding moms? Where are all the bottle feeding moms? Right? That's not how they get organized. Now, the text doesn't say anything about prohibiting organization that way. But listen, if we choose to organize on the basis of affinity, common interest, common seasons of life, here's what we're going to miss. It's inevitable that you're going to miss several things. And here's one of the first things that you're going to miss, right? You're going to have lots of brothers and sisters, but you're not going to have any mothers and fathers or any sons and daughters. You're going to have lots of brothers and sisters, but no mothers and fathers and no sons and daughters. Listen, where were you? If we, if we organized all of our small groups on the basis of affinity, common preferences and common interests and common seasons of life, where are you going to naturally rub shoulders with people who are older than you, people who are younger than you? So that you can be invested in and you can invest in those who are coming up underneath you. Where are you going to rub shoulders with those people on a natural basis instead of creating a small special interest group outside of where we naturally would do community in small groups in the life of our church? Where are you going to rub shoulders with those who have wisdom beyond your years? Because here's what happens, right? I, I experienced this for a number of years in, my, in, the pre, in the church that I served previously, is that we would organize everyone on the basis of affinity groups. And what happened is you had all the single adults isolated from all the married adults and all the older adults isolated from all the younger adults. And so I had these groups of 25-year-old dudes in my classrooms, and they didn't know the first thing about anything, right? When you, when you pull together, listen, when you pull together a lot of people who don't know, who are ignorant, all you get is a collective pool of ignorance. That's just reality, okay? But if you have those younger adults who are engaging with older adults who are two or three steps ahead of where they are in life, on the basis of their, who they are in Jesus, their identity, not their affinities, then you got these older adults who are speaking wisdom in the lives of younger adults. And one of, the things else, one of the other things I've noticed over the course of my time in ministry is that as we age, sometimes there is great wisdom that comes with that, but enthusiasm tends to wane sometimes as we age. And listen, some of you older adults in the room, you need some of the enthusiasm of younger adults to be interjected and say, yes, let's carry the load. Let's move this mission forward. Let's be who God's called us to be. See, if you're an older adult in the room, where are you going to naturally rub shoulders with those who are younger than you to perhaps feed off of some of the enthusiasm and energy that's generated by those who are fresh in the faith or those who are younger than we are and have more energy than we do? So you're going you're gonna to have all kinds of brothers and sisters, people who are at the same season of life and same age and same stage, but you're not going to have any mothers and fathers who are speaking wisdom into your life, and you're not going to have any sons and daughters who are generating enthusiasm and pushing you forward. Peter doesn't say anything about affinities. He talks a lot about identity. In addition, where are you going to get that wisdom, right? Where are you going to get that wisdom that you need? Where are you going to get the enthusiasm you need? Listen, I turned 37 last Monday. And so I, on the front side of 40, I still consider myself a young man. Some of you think that's old. Some of you think that's young, right? There's two different perspectives in the room. I turned 37. But listen, when I turned 37, 
the day before I turned 37, because I've just been naturally rubbing shoulders with some of the older men in our congregation, I get a Facebook post on my news feed from one of the older gentlemen in our congregation, okay? And this is what he said. He said, enjoy today. Tomorrow you will officially be in your, notice what he does here, late, capital L-A-T-E, 30s, right? Mr. David Bolton was kind enough to post that on my Facebook feed. Now, had he not posted that, I may not have known to enjoy today because tomorrow I would be in my late 30s, right? There's a piece of wisdom that I gleaned from him, right? But listen, there's wisdom that these older men and these older women have. They do. And I know those of us on the front side of 40 or even the front side of 30, and some of us on the front side of 20, you go, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're thinking. But listen, They've walked in our shoes. They've lived in our shoes. They have wisdom that's invaluable to speak into your life. Where are you going to rub shoulders with them? In addition, not only will you have lots of mothers, sons, and daughters, but no mothers and fathers, or, son, or no mothers, no mothers and fathers, or sons and daughters, lots of brothers and sisters. You're also going to live with an unrealistic or overzealous desire to be married if you're single. You're going to have these false expectations about what marriage, marriage may be because you may not be rubbing shoulders with anybody in the church who actually is married if, you're just based, if we're just based on affinity groups. If we just kind of isolate all the single adults over here and all the married adults over here, then some of you who are single, who aspire to marriage one day, you may, you may have these unrealistic expectations about what that marriage is going to look like, what that marriage is going to be like because you're not really rubbing shoulders with anybody who is married and seeking to honor God in their relationship. Or, or you might have an unhealthy fear, and I noticed this as well in my years in ministry, an unhealthy fear of singleness. Some of us married adults, right? I don't know how to relate to single people, right? I don't know how to relate to those who aren't married, don't have kids, don't have a spouse. Well, the reality is if you're relating on the basis of identity, God has saved me. He's made me a promise to forgive and cleanse my sins, to receive the Holy Spirit. The gospel is what forms the foundation of who I am. Not my marital status, not my age, not my season of life, not my activities and interests. Then there's a great thing that you have to talk about. His name is Jesus. And what is he doing? How is he forming you? How is he shaping you? What's he calling you to? What are areas of obedience that you're struggling in? See, then our conversations begin to take shape not only around, hey, did you see that game? Or, hey, did you, did you, have you guys been to that restaurant yet? Right? Our conversations begin to take shape around who God is, what he's doing in our lives, and how we're responding to it. Finally, if you just organize around affinity, if, if all the people that you have in, in your life are folks who are in the same season of life, the same age, uh, same marital status, same interest, is that you have a really difficult time learning to lay aside your preferences, your personal preferences, to bear with one another as the Bible calls us to do that. See, there's things that I prefer, and there are things that you prefer, 
And if we were to get into a relationship, into a common, there, there, there were to be, a, we, we all got in a small group together, you might have preferences as far as what kind of food that you were going to eat, and I have preferences as far as what kind of food I'm going to eat. You have preferences as far as what kind of television you're going to watch and what kind of movies you're going to enjoy, and I might have preferences on the, that, that are a little bit different. But you never learn to lay aside personal preferences unless you're constantly rubbing shoulders with people who have preferences that are different than yours. If you just surround with people, yourself with people who think like you and dress like you and act like you, you know what happens? You become entitled. Everyone should think like me. Everyone should dress like me. Everyone should act like me. But if you're rubbing shoulders with people who think differently than you about certain things and they act different, differently than you do in certain instances and they perhaps have different preferences than you do, then you begin to learn, you learn to bear with people who have different preferences and they learn to bear with you. It's really hard to grow up. It's really hard to grow up if we're choosing community on the basis of affinity and not identity. So how do you know if this is taking place? How do you know if you're actually doing this? Let me show with you how you know. I'll show it to you in the text. You know that you're choosing identity over affinity if what you do is driven together is driven by who you are. What you do together is driven by who you are. Look at what happens in the lives of these new, these new converts, these disciples, after they come to faith. The Bible says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And there's all these kind of miraculous things that were taking place around them. And as these, all, these miraculous things took place around them, they were leveraging their resources and they were sacrificially providing those who had for those who had need, they were sharing meals together, not on a, every, every two weeks, right? They were sharing meals together on a daily basis in homes. They were breaking bread and sharing a meal and sharing fellowship. There was this weaving together that was taking place in their lives as this new community is being founded called the church. Right? How do you know if you're actually choosing identity over affinity? Here's how you know. What you do together will be defined by who you are. See, if you're choosing affinity, and maybe you even have different ages in your small group and different marital status in your small group, but it's all built around common interests, then essentially what happens and what will happen is that your conversations will be driven, they'll be derailed, right? There's not going to be a whole lot of discussion about the Bible and doctrine. There's not going to be a whole lot of discussion, not going to be a whole lot of sharing with one another. But you notice how these small groups get formed. What they're doing when they meet in these homes is they're talking about the Bible. They open up the apostles' teaching and what they had been taught by Peter and James and John. They're opening up the Bible and they're talking about the Bible and they're, they're pressing the Bible into the particulars of life and applying the Bible to the realities of their circumstances. They're not just talking about felt needs out here. right? How do, how do I get my finances in order or how do I raise kids? They're opening the Bible and they're putting their nose in this book and they're saying, what does this say to me about who I am and who God is and what I need to do about it? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. See, what they were doing was driven by who they were. Jesus had saved them. He had forgiven them. The Spirit had come in. So now they had this insatiable hunger for the Bible, and they're opening it and talking about it together as they meet. 
And they meet together in homes to share meals. Not only share meals, but if somebody had a need arose in the life of that community because they're so interwoven and their lives are so knitted together that when a need arises, if somebody's got a house they can sell, they sell the house. And they go and meet a need of someone else. Or they have a particular possession that they can they can get rid of in order to address the needs and the lives of others. They are so generous radically. They don't just share meals together. They're sharing their life together and laying down their lives. All right, so there's this, there's this close-knit fellowship because of this common identity. So they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and then they continue to sh- share communion together. They break the bread with one another every time they gather, and they remember Jesus' body broken. They remember Jesus' blood shed. So they remember the gospel in picture, not just in word. And then they get on their face and they pray faithfully. And they get on their face and they pray fervently. They pray for themselves that God would continue to stretch and grow them. They pray for their elders that God would continue to give them direction and wisdom. They pray for their unbelieving family members and friends that God would save them. So they open the Bible together. They share life with one another. They remember the gospel in word and in picture. And they get on their knees before God and cry out to him. Listen, as we roll into small groups and they get relaunched this week in the life of our church. Let me ask you a question. Those of you who are small group facilitators and those of you who will be small group members. Let me ask you a question. Will what you do together in those times be driven by who you are? When you get together in a home on Sunday night or on Tuesday night or on Thursday night, will you open the Bible and put your face in it and say, what does this say? Will you get on your knees together and petition God? that he would grow you and he would continue to knit your life together with those who are gathered there with you, that he would give direction and vision and wisdom to our pastoral staff, to our elders as we seek to give leadership to our church. Will you get on your knees before God and pray for your friends and family who are not yet believers that God would save them when the needs arise in that group? Will you leverage your resources to help address them? Will you joyfully and happily meet together regularly, not like, man, i got to go to a small group again tonight. <laughs> Ever been there? I'll raise my hand. But you would joyfully share a meal together because these people love Jesus, and I love Jesus, and Jesus loves us, and we want We're being bound together. So there's a joy that comes out of that identity that you share with one another. Will you, will what we do together over the course of the next 11 weeks in our small groups be defined by who we are? My hope and my prayer is that it would be. Is that it would be. And that you would grow exponentially as you open this book and put your face in it with eight or ten other people and they're, they're sharpening you and you're sharpening them. That you would pray faithfully and fervently. That you would radically meet needs in each other's lives. And you remember who Jesus is and what he's done. This is how you know 
if you're choosing identity over affinity. If when you get together, all you talk about is your kids, and all you talk about is your finances, and all you talk about is vacations, and all you talk about is a sports team, and all you talk about is um, the, the things going on at school, if that's all you're discussing in that context, listen, you're still operating at the level of affinity. My hope is that we begin to drive down to our identity. And so who we are is shaping those conversations about school. Who we are is shaping those conversations about finances. Who we are is shaping those conversations about what kind of vacations we're going to take. Now, if this happens in the life of our church, what might be the result? What might be the result? If real gospel community, if lives are woven together because of the promise that God makes to forgive and cleanse and indwell us, and we respond to that with faith in Jesus Christ, and our life gets bound and woven together with other believers in Jesus so that we're digging into the scriptures and praying faithfully and fervently and sharing our lives with one another and remembering the gospel every time we meet. If that happens, what might be the result? I want you to notice what God does in the life of this first church community where gospel community begins to break out. I want you to notice what he does in verse 41. Or 47, I'm sorry. They were praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, you know what I believe will happen if this kind of gospel community gets formed here? Is that God will multiply it. He will multiply it. And day by day, week by week, there will be men and women who did not know Jesus before who know him now. Men and women who had not received that promise of forgiveness and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who now have received it. They were once those who were far off, but God has brought them close. That God will multiply that. In fact, you see 3,000 being added there at the day of Pentecost. You fast forward to Acts chapter 4, and you see 5,000 men not including the women and children who are responding in faith in Acts chapter 4 as this community grows and it expands and God multiplies it. I had a little taste of this a couple of weeks ago. I had the opportunity after being here for uh, about uh, coming up on four months, as I said earlier, to sit down with a gentleman who had been attending our church for the last three months of the time that I've been here. And he said, I got here at the exact right moment because everything that we have discussed and everything that you have shared cut me to the heart. And as we sat and talked about his story and about his history and where he's coming from and where he aspires to be, he began to share with me that God had, had cut him to the heart and God had brought him under great conviction and so there at a table at Starbucks in Rockwall, we sat and talked about the gospel, what God has done, that his salvation isn't dependent upon what he can do, but what God has done. And we came, came to the end of that conversation. I said, is that something that you're ready to do today is place your faith in Jesus or you want to continue to think about that? And he said, I'm ready to do it today. And I listened as he prayed and placed his faith in Jesus through tears and fighting back emotion. And that day I saw God multiplying, adding to our number those who are being saved. And if this kind of community takes root, this kind of community begins to develop where it's rooted in who we are, not what we prefer. 
I believe that we'll see God adding to our number those who are being saved, those who are moving from death to life, from darkness to light, from despair to hope. And that's one of the reasons I get up every morning and do what I do. That's one of the reasons your elders meet every Wednesday to pray faithfully and fervently for you and for our community, for our congregation, for the needs, but not just for the hospital list, but also for the advancement of this mission that God's given us of sharing the gospel, shaping disciples, and sending missionaries. This is the kind of community that God multiplies. And my hope and my prayer is that he would make us into this kind of people. Let's pray together. Father, we come today giving you thanks for the fact that we all at one time were far off and that none of us, based on our own merit, or our own abilities, or our own actions, or our own work, deserved to be brought near. But by your grace, by your grace, you opened our eyes to see the vanity of sin and the glory of Jesus. You opened our ears to hear. You opened our heart, awakened our heart to love. That we've been recipients of a promise. And that, that promise is the good news that we have to share with a world in need. Father, may you help us as gospel community gets formed here in our midst, may you help us to choose identity over affinity so that we're not stagnant in our growth, but we are shaped and sharpened by men and women who have years of experience on us, and we are investing in those who are coming up underneath us as well. Father, I pray that what we do would be driven by who we are, so that what takes place in homes throughout our community over the next 11 weeks would be shaped by this promise that we've received as your people. And Father, I do pray that you would multiply, that you would add to our number those who are being saved, not for our glory, but for yours. We pray it in Jesus' name.